welcome to the Innovations in Aging podcast, where we explore the latest in how the next generation of changemakers can prepare to meet the needs of our aging world. I'm your host, John Keevan. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Jeannie Lee. Jeannie is the Assistant Dean of Student Services and an Associate Professor in the College of Pharmacy at the University of Arizona. If that wasn't enough, she's a clinician, researcher, and advocate for older adults. Jeannie's currently working on multiple grants with an emphasis on medication adherence and decision support that target an important bridge between pharmacy and the needs of older adults. In our conversation today, we cover a lot of interesting topics, including key challenges and opportunities for pharmacists working with older adults today, some really cool technology, and tips and tricks for interprofessional communication. Let's get started. Hello, Dr. Lee. Thanks for joining us today. Before we get deep into conversation, tell me a little bit. I mean, I know you through the Innovations in Aging program, and I know you're in pharmacy, but tell me how all these things came to be. Pharmacy, aging, and you know your experience. How did those all come? Great. Thank you, John, for having me for this podcast. Um, I think aging has been part of my life through and through. Uh, growing up in South Korea, I lived with my grandparents for um, many years. They helped raise me and my brother and sister. We were very close to them. They were intelligent and generous people. Um, my grandmother had very deep Christian faith and she helped found several churches. Um, my grandfather was a judge and he was part of the South Korean Supreme Court. So uh, well-known, well-established people. They both ended up with Alzheimer's disease, developed Alzheimer's disease towards the end of their lives. And so that always meant a big deal to me, how they um, went from a very highly functioning people to people who didn't recognize me anymore, um, even their children anymore. Um, and so that kind of sat with me for a while. And when I did my residency training, the pharmacy residency training at the VA in Washington, D.C., we had a 10-story nursing home right next door that was connected to the VA through a tunnel. And I, working with older adults at the nursing home, in the clinic settings, in the hospital settings, came very naturally to me because I think I just had a, an affinity toward older people, listening to their stories and trying to help them. And so um, I, that's sort of where I got my start in terms of clinical pharmacy and geriatrics. And then I, after my residency training, I worked for Walter Reed, which is now the National Military Medical Center in Maryland, but it was a, an Army Medical Center in Washington, D.C. at the time. And I worked there for almost eight years and developed multiple interprofessional programs and care teams for older adults. So in geriatrics, we did home visits, we had clinics, we had interprofessional fall prevention programs, and just loved working with the team as well as working with older adults. So it kind of stuck with me when I came into academia that just naturally um, I wanted to be in a position within geriatrics and do research um, in older adults, with older adults. Wow, there's, that's a, a fascinating story and so much to unpack there. I, I think maybe I wanna start almost at the beginning of your story there. You know, I think several of the people we've talked to have had some personal experience with an, an older family member that has informed or driven their, their pathway into this. But I think you also have 
compared to many of our uh, American counterparts here, a different cultural experience too with um, aging and the thoughts around older adults. Um, what, what have you noticed as a difference between how you were raised and older adults in your community and your life compared to how you've seen it here in the United States since you worked? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think in, in the Korean culture in general, we think of aging as something to look forward to. Um, we actually think of elders as our elders. Mm -hmm. They're all, they almost have like higher power than people who are younger because they are full of wisdom and life experiences. And so I think the respect level is a little bit different from America, where sometimes we think of older adults as people who we need to take care of, but they also should be able to function on their own and not so much need our help. Mm -hmm. um, and the benefits of aging in South Korea, um, even in the modern day, my mom tells me that it's huge because all of the public transportations are free. They watch movies and entertainments for free and they they are highly respected by younger generations. Yeah. Uh, you know, you mentioned at Walter Reed, you would um, meet with older adults and hear their stories. I think that, that saying in particular you know, that I would work with older adults and listen to their stories sort of embodies what that, that conversation you're talking about, right? It's not just about helping them, but it's they have this intrinsic value to them uh, as people, personhood, and who they are, and what they've experienced. That you can, you can get that. Uh, uh, you can get a feeling of that, a portion of that, by listening to their stories and um, you know what they've learned and their experiences in their life. And I think uh, it's probably something easily lost in American culture uh, from time to time. But uh, uh, an amazing way of looking at it, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I benefit as much as a provider within geriatrics working with older adults as my patients who work with me. So yes, I love learning from their life experiences and um, hopefully history doesn't repeat itself, but we actually improve the standing of um, humans on this earth yeah. through listening to our elders. Yeah. And so you were a pharmacist when you were there? Is that yes. the best role you're doing? Okay. Do pharmacists interact with uh, older adult patients a lot at the hospital, or is that um, less common? Yeah, uh, it's very common um, because pharmacists are in the community settings, as you all know. You've seen right. the the corner pharmacy that's around the corner from you guys, yeah. um, and because older adults use more medicines compared to younger adults, they naturally are drawn to people and facilities that deal with medications. Mm -hmm. And that's in, that includes community pharmacies, but also hospitals, clinics. And we don't have enough pharmacists, in my opinion, who are trained in geriatrics to go around and work with all the older adults that we should be. But um, wherever possible, we are present to work with the interprofessional team to be able to care for older adults. Yeah, you know, as a layman and a person who interacts with pharmacists to the extent that I probably might go to a particular store to pick it up and I get a consult and during the period of the pickup, um, do pharmacy students who come into uh, into your program and, and part of the Innovations Aging and other related programs, do they have a sense of how, of how much that they will be talking with patients, in particular older adults, before they start their career? Before, I'm not sure, but as they are starting, because we do have a first year course within the PharmD program, um, and several of our students are also involved with the Innovations in Aging programs, 
um, they quickly realized that pharmacy is a huge part of geriatrics mm -hmm. and elder care because older adults use a lot of medications and over-the-counter products, vitamins, supplements, herbal products. They really are the users of medicines overall, mm -hmm. especially here in the U.S., but um, I think really worldwide as well. Um, and so I think they do realize quickly how uh, much of an important role a pharmacist can play in an older person's health and life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you certainly mentioned that, you know, you think that more pharmacists should have geriatric training and introduction into that important aspect. What, what are some of the challenges that exist with working with older adults as a, as a pharmacist? Um, there are many. <laughs> I'll say that population growth to start with is a challenge. Um, so the World Health Organization, um, the latest report that I've read anyway, said that one in six people in the whole world globally uh, will be 60 and older by 2030. Within the U.S., I've read that one in five will be older than older or um, 65 or older by 2030. Mm -hmm. And we'll have over uh, 425 million people globally who will be 80 years and older. So just the explosion of aging population is a challenge in itself because um, even though we live longer and many people are healthier longer, towards the end of life, we certainly have challenges, health issues, chronic diseases, medications that people need to manage. Um, and so to deal with that, health systems and health providers should be ready and to be able to um, care for the older populations as best we can. Yeah. So that's a kind of the baseline challenge that we all have, not just pharmacy, but we all have. In terms of pharmacists, polypharmacy, which is using multiple chronic medications um, longitudinally, that's very common among older adults, as I said before, more common among older adults compared to younger adults. And not only that, but they might be using complex regimen which is taking medications multiple times a day or taking multiple doses per day. So for example, I had a patient in my clinic and um, who was on 46 different medications, vitamins, supplements, herbal products, right? And when I say that number, usually I teach in uh, pharmacy and medicine and the student's eyes kind of <laughs> grow wider, um, but to be able to manage that type of a complex um, medicine regimen is not easy for an older person and maybe their care partner who might be a spouse, which in this case, it was her husband who was managing all of her medications. Yeah. Um, and so for our job, I think as pharmacists is not to take that at face value, but really explore to figure out are all of those medications needed? Are they helpful? Uh, because medications aren't always helpful, right? They come with side effects. They can be harmful. Um, there might be drug interactions when there are that many medications. And then the patient may or may not be taking all of them because how can you, sure. uh, you know, ingest that many medicines? And she was taking medications, I think five or six times a day the husband was helping with. But when she left our clinic, 
we had her down to 15 medications taken twice a day. Not only was the patient, but her husband was a very happy person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because we pretty much got rid of anything that she really did not need and some of the ones that she wasn't taking to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. How, how does that, um, I have a bunch of questions from that story. How does that even occur where somebody gets to that many uh, drugs that are that are prescribed to them uh, and then you are able to cut down? Is, is that just sort of the, the separate world that pharmacists versus, let's say, a GP, or the general practitioner might live in and, and the ability to, to analyze interaction effects and benefits? Like, how, how did we get to that point? And then how... What is the mechanism that an older adult can use to find somebody like you in your facility to, you know, to clarify that? <laughs> okay, multi-part question. Multi-part. <laughs> so, uh, first of all, I think general practitioners, some um, of the providers do not know, simply do not know how many medications mm-hmm. their patient is taking mm-hmm. at home. Mm-hmm. So, um, when they, when an older adult has a visit with me, we call them and we say clean out your house and bring every medication bottle you can find mm-hmm. vitamins supplements otc products anything that you take mm-hmm. for your health mm-hmm. and so that's how we we um, are able to accumulate that many different medications that's in someone's possession if they're taking all of them they may be they may not be um, and then we decipher what conditions they have, which older adults have multimorbidity, which means they have multiple conditions that are co-occurring at the same time for which medications are needed. And that may be um, different medications. We might be able to find combination products to suit some of their needs. But bottom line, looking at everything that they use and looking at their um, list of conditions matching them up to see which ones are actually safe for them to use and which ones are not according to their age and how our body ages. Mm -hmm. All of that impacts medications as well. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the starting point. And then we do a thorough interview to find out is the patient experiencing any side effects from these medications. And then we do a drug interaction screening. And then we might, we will calculate their kidney function to make sure that the medications are able to be cleared or are they accumulating in the bodies and causing toxicity at that point. Mm -hmm. So all of those steps we follow in order to determine optimal regimen for the patient. That's amazing. I mean, I would think at the number of 47 or at a high number, it would be like playing you know, Jenga, where there's just so many blocks in there. And even if you've calculated it all right, if you forget to take one of the many that are in there, that that also could have an effect because it wasn't planned to not be there. Right. It, that sounds um complicated. Right. Yeah. And for that particular patient, actually, she was, she was having issues with sleep. Mm. So she would stay up at night, watch TV while her husband was asleep. And you know, when you watch infomercials, you'll see all kinds of products advertised for your brain, your heart, your you know, your kidneys, your joints. Um, and so once you get hooked into one of those marketing campaigns and you start ordering supplements or herbal products, then they continue to come. Mm-hmm. And that's how sometimes they get accumulated. It's very hard to discontinue those products too, yeah. those orders, because you have to physically make a phone call and talk to a body, a person, to be able to discontinue 
So sometimes that's what happens too. It's not just the prescribed medications, but things that they might pick up over the counter or things that they order because it was said to be good for their whatever condition. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, I didn't answer your question about how to find somebody like me. <laughs> That's not always easy. Um, I usually, I do a lot of community presentations to older adults and I say, if you find a pharmacist that you like at your local pharmacy, ask them for a card so that you can have their contact information. And if you take all, you know, a list of everything that you take at home, they will be happy to screen for drug interactions for you. So um, many pharmacists, in the Metro Tucson area, in the Phoenix area, are graduates of our program. Fortunately, they have skills as to do everything that I've just described, right. but they need data, data to be able to do that. So mm -hmm. if patients or providers can provide that, that information, then pharmacists would be happy to work with them, you know, given time constraints, because we sure. know that pharmacists in the community setting are very, uh, very busy and they have high, very high demands in terms of operations. Um, but within uh, clinical setting, so there are clinics where geriatric, geriatrics trained pharmacists exist and um, do work with older adults. So uh, it's, there's, one here in Tucson within the banner setting in addition to mine and also clinics in the Phoenix area within banner health. But there are other care facilities and systems like Care More and um, Optum Health and other um, programs that have pharmacists within their t team to be able to manage medications, especially for older adults who use a lot of, lot of them. That's awesome. I hope that'll be helpful to to some of our listeners. To to go uh, to go back, you you just made a comment about community pharmacists are very strained in regards to resource and availability. And you talked a little bit before that about you know America's growing need. All, all the the demographics of of the United States are are shifting. We're going to have uh, slightly more of a column, but still more older adults than we'll have younger adults. I, I, it appears that we might have. Um, a less severe angle than perhaps some countries, but it's still going to be a need for far more um, geriatrically trained, disciplined uh, professionals to work with older adults. What do you, um, in your mind, do you think we are tackling that challenge well? Do you feel like we're, we're, we're bringing up enough pharmacists who are uh, trained in geriatrics for that upcoming challenge? I think that uh, we have enough pharmacy programs who are um, training and graduating pharmacists for the future, mm -hmm. but what we do lack is um, interprofessional education mm -hmm. and training and practice experiences. So even though evidence is very clear that interprofessional teams, including a pharmacist, are good for older adults and it improves outcomes. We did a systematic review right here. Our team did that to discover that not only um, health outcomes like blood pressure and hemoglobin A1C for someone who has diabetes, but also medication adherence, less hospitalization, medication safety, all improved when a pharmacist was involved within an interprofessional team. And so that's not always happening at every corner in the US, 
Um, and so that's, that's an area where we do need to have some funding and health system structures to be able to have pharmacists on every team that takes care of older adults. So that's my belief that we should. Awesome. That's uh, great, great feedback. Um, all right, let's, let's shift a little bit. So, you know, we, in, at the beginning of this, had mentioned a little bit about uh, your grants and medical adherence and decision support. Can you explain what that is? Sure. So um, those are my research areas, so I'm passionate about them. <laughs> so <laughs> medication adherence is when a patient and their provider um, talk together, strategize, and agree on a medication regimen the patient should be using for their condition and patient adheres to that condition. So there's that collaboration between provider and patient. Um, decision support is helping patients make safe decisions about a medication that they have missed. So let's say that it's been three hours um, since I was supposed to take my medication, I missed it. Is it safe for me to take this particular medication now or is it safer safer for me to skip this medication and take my medication at the next time and next next dose that's already scheduled. So it's that component that helps you make that decision. Um, and so those are my um, research areas and medication non-adherence. So patients not using medications the way that, that they, them, them and their providers have agreed to uh, it's a huge issue um, in the U.S., but also worldwide. So research tells us that, um, for example, my area of research is in hypertension medication adherence. Hypertension can be very, it can be very harmful. It can damage not only our heart, but our eyes, our kidneys, our brain. Um, and we have very effective medications that can um, deter that, that can improve outcomes for all those organ systems. Um, but the adherence is only around 50%. Mm. So how do we help patients use the medications that are, that are effective? They're cheap, they're less co costly. Most, most are older medications and they're very effective, mm -hmm. um, but they're not using them. So that's my research area. So we, you know, as a nation, as, as, as a world, we spend billions of dollars discovering great new medications, which is amazing. The College of Pharmacy here has the Center for Drug Discovery, which we are very proud of. But if patients don't use the great medication, they don't work. Um, and so that's the, that's the challenge that I'm also dealing with, which is another challenge to patients, older patients having polypharmacy and patients in general using multiple medications. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to get into uh, your thoughts on interventions for, for that particular thing, but maybe just taking one step back. What, is there a common root cause for non-adherence? Is it motivation? Is it fear? Is it forgetfulness? Is it, you know, what really causes it or is there not one thing? It's all of the above. <laughs> it's multifactorial. And so usually the interventions that we design are also multifactorial. Hmm. We found that education only does not work. Um, packaging medications conveniently does not work by itself. It's a combination of things that can help patients actually use their medications. So, and so the research that I'm involved 
with currently is called MESREM, and that stands for Medication Education, Decision Support, Reminding, and Monitoring. And it's a system, it's a technology-based system that includes a smartphone app and a website companion. Um, and it does medication education. So it, it's, uh, it's based on hypertension medication. So it has educational information about hypertension as well as hypertension medications. And then it has the algorithm built in to help support the decision for those missed medications. Um, it reminds, just like your smartphone reminds you of your schedule and uh, other things. Um, and then it also monitors how, how a user is using their medication as well as to help them track their blood pressure mm -hmm. right on their phone. So it's a technology-based intervention, but it was theory-based um, intervention that was proven effective before technology platform existed. So, so the it's theory a is translation. This, okay, this the theory is this multifactorial approach to it. Yeah, all these different directions. Yes, okay. and the 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 baseline theory is actually um, a prospective memory intervention theory that was um, implemented that was developed and implemented by Dr. Kathy Insel in the College of Nursing here yeah. at mm -hmm. the University of Arizona and her team, and so we took that. We took her uh, theory-based intervention that was proven effective and translated that into technology so that the intervention stays with the user all the time because it was a home-based nurse visit intervention. And when the nurse left the home, the adherence slowly declined. And so we want it to be ubiquitous and we want it to be a companion that's around the user all the time. and more and more older adults are using smartphones now. And so technology was gonna be um, kind of our intervention mechanism. That's, that's amazing. So w what stage of development and research are you in for this particular tool? So for uh, this particular program, we are at right at the time of recruiting older patients into the study. So we're doing a randomized controlled trial using the um, smartphone and website compared to website alone that has the educational information mm -hmm. to see what difference it makes. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, it sounds like an amazing project and I'm sure full of many interesting technical um, health data as well as development challenges that you had to go through in the process of figuring out what this thing was gonna look like and how it was gonna interact. Do you have any, any tidbits or nuggets, experiences that were fun during that process? Oh gosh, we have so many. <laughs> I think um, originally when we had search for smartphone apps for older adults, um, there are plenty of multiple, many, many apps available for medication taking, medication adherence essentially, mm -hmm. but no app was theory-based and was tested and really founded on the prospective memory theory of cognitive aging um, and older adults. And so we said this might be an area that we can impact. Um, and so we're working with human factors experts at University of Illinois and a small business here who developed a software um, to really devise a program that would be helpful and 
friendly for use by older adults because the other apps were not friendly enough for older adults adult use. And we've involved older adults um, throughout our design and development stages to get their feedback about, you know, how should this look? Is this helpful? Do you understand what this function is trying to do for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great example too of interpersonal or interprofessional work that is outside of the clinical space. Right? Yes. Uh, bringing in, you know, technical experts and other people from other domains to build a tool like this. That's, that's an awesome example of it. Yeah, um, cool. It's while, while we're talking about technology and its ability to um, to help with adherence, non-adherence, and, and other aspects of older adults' lives. What do you think right now? Is there is there anything that technology is getting in particular right or wrong when it comes to communicating with older adults? Um, I think technology, the availability itself, is certainly helpful. Uh, we used to write grants and the reviewers would say, older people do not use technology. <laughs> yeah. That is no longer the case. Yeah. So we know that, um, I read January of this year that um, people who are 65 years and older, like 61% of them use, own and use a smartphone mm -hmm. and 75% use the internet to search for information. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, all kinds of information is out there on the web and so as healthcare professionals, we should be the ones filtering the information and pointing them to the right sources for the information that they need, um, especially when it comes to health, mm -hmm. when it um, is healthcare focused. And I think technology poses a great opportunity to enhance communication with older adults uh, and give them access to health information to begin with. But because older people did not grow up with technology, like our younger generations now, like Generation Z, their you know, smartphone is like, it's second nature to them. Older adults, that technology is not second nature to them, certainly. They can learn and use. So how can we make the process easier for them and make it more friendly for them and not make it burdensome um, by using the right color scheme, right font, right font size, um, information that's displayed in a certain way that's easier for older brains to be able to digest and use mm -hmm. is kind of the focus of this project, one of the focus focuses of the project. Making sure that we're using health literacy friendly language um, as for older adults is one of the risk populations when it comes to health literacy. So that's where we are, the ability for us to use words and number to make sense out of health information so that we can make our, the right decisions for ourselves, right? Yeah. And um, older adults is one of the risk groups um, along with minority patients, patients who are non-English speakers and um, low patients with low education backgrounds. But even if you are a a scientist or a PhD professional, if you're not in a healthcare field, you may not understand all of the language either, right? So mm -hmm. it's kind of a universal thing where we should use language that is simple enough for everyone to be able to understand. And so that's another challenge with some of the technology is that it's very complex to set up and it's hard to use because of 
communication challenges or just simply um, not having the ability for older people to um, digest the information. Yeah. Yeah. It, it made me think too, I wonder if the technology will need to evolve as well as the generations get older. Because, you know, you had mentioned older adults now may use technology as a tool to accomplish a task. I'm going to call you to get to tell you something to get your information. Well, and I have no evidence for this. It's just personal experience. Uh, it certainly seems like the younger generation, younger than me, uh, tend to use it for social connection more than anything else. Not, not even necessarily to accomplish a task so much as just to feel connected. And it could be interesting to see how um, their, the, the influence of the tool, the intervention ability of the tool might change over time as social constructs, cultural constructs move up in, in age. Um, and make some changes. I don't know. Does that make any sense? You think that would? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that does make sense. But if you ask a younger person a question, mm -hmm. they're going to go right to their phone. Sure. Right. Yeah. And find out that information for you. Mm -hmm. um, older adults are and they do use smartphones and technology for social connections as well. And I think that is a, a good thing, especially sure. during the whole COVID pandemic everyone was so isolated. I think having technology, being able to video call someone, right? Your grandparents was hugely helpful. And yeah. so I hope that uh, those innovations continue so that older adults can not only use technology for things like their medication taking and tracking their blood pressure, but social um, issues and social connections and engagement as well. Yeah. yeah. I, I would imagine COVID caused a lot of people who did not use technology. I certainly know this is true at the university level, but caused a lot of businesses and individuals to start using technology for social connection that they didn't feel like they needed before. You know? Right. So, yeah. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Interesting how it's different. That's exciting, though, that, that you're getting into that stage of the study. Is uh, How could people learn more about it, or when would be the appropriate time to learn more about this work? Uh, we do have study flyers available. Oh, okay. And um, the information will be available in the Innovations in Healthy Aging website. At, that's a university-based website um, that Health Sciences sponsors. And so uh, the studies, the um program site has information about ongoing studies that are currently recruiting and so our study information will be available through there but you can participate if you are 65 or older yeah. with hypertension take <laughs> at least one medication for hypertension and self-manage that and so um, the if the listeners are students they may be able to refer their grandparents or their parents to us that is a wink wink nod nod recommendation <laughs> uh, to to <laughs> to contact Jeannie if you can um, maybe just before we get off this tool I, I feel like there's there's probably some nuggets there some interesting concepts about your interprofessional experience working with technologists of some kind in the development of this app did you run into any challenges working with non health sciences related um, professionals when building this app and communicating the challenges that older adults have I think there are more opportunities than challenges mm -hmm. and there's more joy in collaborating mm -hmm. with interdisciplinary team members than working just with pharmacists. <laughs> um, credits certainly go for my pharmacists um, collaborators. They are amazing. 
But when when we do collaborate across the profession and across disciplines, we bring so much richer and wider perspectives than we ever could just within one profession or one discipline. And I think the, the fruitfulness of this project is because of that, because everyone brought different perspectives and dis- different expertise, but we all had the same goal of how can we make medication taking easier for older people with hypertension? And how do we have, how do we enhance technology? How do we use leverage technology to be able to do that now that more older people are using um, technology that's that's very much available and accessible to them so working in interprofessional and interdisciplinary research teams is it brings much more joy and um, I, I think um, more impactful product than you could ever dream with um, dream coming from just one discipline or one one profession. And technology is challenging or developing technology is challenging because there are so many areas for innovation and improvement and we have a limited budget, you know? So there are definitely things that we've noted that we want to include in our future iterations. Um, but we did, Dr. Inzel did get uh, funding through NIH with Dr. Mudar from University of Illinois to look at MESRAM system for not only older people, but older people with mild cognitive impairment. So patients with dementia or mild cognitive impairment, MCI, are also challenging populations because they may not be a great historian in talking about their medications or even their conditions. So working with care partners become a big strategy uh, for those patients. And so we're we're hoping to discover if technology-based intervention can help that population and keep them as independent as long as they want, as long as they wish and possible. So this is all about self-management of hypertension medications to be able to keep older adults where they want to live, maybe at home, um, maybe in, a, in a, an independent living situation for as long as they can. Yeah, I feel like that is a underlying theme that we have in the Innovations in Aging program we've talked about on this podcast, and you and I have talked about personhood, self-determination, independence, uh, being core aspects, core needs for older adults that are often... Uh, overlooked in technology development and uh, care and just their lives in general from, you know, it could be family members, caretakers, whoever it is, Uh, but that these are important aspects about feeling empowered, about feeling confident in who you are and your personhood that that is important to take into consideration for technology. So that's, that's amazing. Thank you. So that was a great exploration of, you know, the development process, the interprofessional components of working with um, technologists and other aspects outside of the clinical space. But let's get to the clinical space. You know, uh, what are your thoughts on the way technology can help or hinder communications within the clinical space? Um, so technology is useful in interprofessional communication because patient encounter, the way we document and we also communicate with each other among the providers about 
patient care is through electronic health records. So that's sort of the mainstay within healthcare um, right now. And that's all technology driven, which is helpful because it bridges the gap of communicating with providers that may or may not be on site um, right at that moment, because we're able to use that technology to communicate back and forth to take care of the patients. Mm -hmm. But we also use technology to be able to expand our expertise to areas that our expertise may or may not exist. So for example, a rural hospital could tap into a critical care expertise in a uh, metropolitan area um, to be able to care for patients within the rural setting. Mm. So technology enhances that. Um, certainly during the COVID pandemic, the telehealth was used heavily um, and for older patients like ours, because we wanted to keep them safe and not invite them into a healthcare space where there might you know, be a risk um, that might pose a risk for the older patients, telehealth was used heavily to be able to take care of their day-to-day -day health issues without having to invite them into the clinical space. So that was also very helpful. The challenge is certainly there because we don't have a universal electronic health record. Every institu institution might use a different system. Systems do not talk to each other. Sure. So there's still, you know, please request this record from <laughs> this provider at this facility, you know, and um, fax machines are still used for that purpose. Wow. So there's certainly gaps in care, um, even with technology, but healthcare tools, like we have resources on our phones. I have a, a resource on my phone I can look up all of your medications to see if they interact with each other at all. You know, I can quickly calculate your renal function to make sure all the medications will be cleared uh, appropriately. Um, and so those technology-based tools are easily accessible on the website or on your phone. So that's helpful too. And then there are patient level tools like continuous glucose monitoring for, for patients with diabetes who might have severe diabetes we can continuously monitor their blood sugar levels to see how well their diabetes is being controlled. And the, the monitor can actually alarm you and wake you up if you're sleeping, if your blood sugar falls too low. So that certainly helps the um, patient, not only their health, but their peace of mind, right? Because mm -hmm. um, it's very hard to detect if your blood sugar is falling low when you're sleeping. Um, and so there are certainly technology innovations and tools that are now available that we did not used to have to be able to communicate with each other um, among the interprofessional care teams and with our patients. Yeah, the, you know, it seems like from a layman's perspective, a lot of the pharmacy related technology, let's take diabetes, for example, the technology progressively made it easier for the patient or person to administer the insulin, for example. So yes. they didn't have to use a needle, a needle, it's attached to them, or it's, you know, it's just easier to maintain, to do, and to remember. Correct. And so now it seems like maybe that next transition is how do we, how do we store that data? And then how do we 
transmitted in a safe way to a team that can then do something about exactly that yeah. yeah so yeah. we were able to download the data from the continuous glucose monitoring mm-hmm. um, devices to be able to look at it together with the patient mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so and uh, security and safety of patient data is always in question no mm-hmm. matter no matter what mm-hmm. you know innovations come to face so um, yes that's why within the innovations in aging program we work with um, health regulators and lawyers Mm -hmm. (laughs) to teach our students about regulatory science and all of the legalities um, included in aging and health yeah wow uh, that's that's great. So you know we're, we're wrapping up here towards the end. There's definitely one big question that I want to get to, I want to get to you before uh, before we wrap up here. And for everybody who's listening, what is something that we can practice every day to start being better communicators? Okay. So um, I think listen first. <laughs> be an active listener. Be attentive to each other. I think that that's where communication starts always. Um, I think for the healthcare professionals and and all professionals, really, uh, for that matter, we can leave our professional jargons behind, especially when we're talking to our patients. Um, And again, health literacy and uh, the risk groups that I've talked about before are all around us, but even a rocket scientist may not... may not know what a beta blocker is and what that does to their body and their heart, right? So as a pharmacist, it's my responsibility to explain to them what exactly that class of medications do and how it it is going to impact their everyday life, um, how they feel every day when they start to take that medication. So I think within our own professional areas, to be able to speak clearly, to explain things with patients um, is really the key. And I, there's a list of uh, clear communications, like strategies that I usually go over in um, any kind of a communication course or communication strategies, especially with older adults. Uh, talking a little bit more slowly uh, is really great for them to be able to process and understand what you're saying, Um, explaining things in plain and respectful language, making it simple and concise and not talk like we are doing today, Mm -hmm. really telling them the action points, things Mm -hmm. that they really need to remember and do. Um, using pictures is really great because, you know, picture is worth a thousand words, right? Definitely. Um, if they are the right pictures, use interpreters. If you are working with people who do, whose uh, language is not, whose first language is not English, um, and make decisions together, set goals together. Don't assume that just because the person you are communicating to may or may not be understanding all of the jargon language that you're using that you must make decisions for them. Mm -hmm. That is not true. You can certainly collaborate and make decisions and goals um, together. And then as pharmacists, we use something called teach back. Teach back is a method where we ask the patients to tell us back what they understand about what we talked about and what they will do so that we can ensure that we've explained everything thoroughly and correctly. So that's one kind of a clinical tool that we use. 
those are some great tools to use, uh, you know, in the professional space. You know, one of the things we really cover in the Innovations AG program, as you well know, are um, many of the sources of bias, many of the, the, uh, the biases that influence older adults. And I'm sure that bleeds into the communication space um, in the professional communication space, in interprofessional communication space. So uh, just what are your thoughts on how to minimize bias? What other tools might one, one have to check themselves, think about the words they're using when they talk to older adults? That's a really great question. Um, and we certainly need to check our own biases and try to practice inclusive communication as much as possible which is communicating both verbally and non-verbally with respect, making sure that we acknowledge and use one's pronoun that they prefer, avoiding gendered language, such as um, chairman, instead of chairman, we can say chairperson. Instead of stewardess, we can say flight attendant and really try to get away from the gendered language and words that and terms that we used to say casually. Um, I think also celebrating our differences and our cultural backgrounds is really important. So I know the university does a really good job of celebrating all kinds of cultural um, heritage months and events and holidays, which I think we should continue to do. And if you are on the learner side, if you're not from that particular culture, or re religious group, then you can really be a on a uh, have a learner's heart in exploring and finding about such culture and celebrating with the people who belong within that culture, and using inclusive image. If we are using pictures, let's say with our patients, um, that we use inclusive images to be able to convey our message and information, and. In regards to talking with older adults in particular, we do want to avoid elder speak. And elder speak is speaking way too slowly just because you're talking to an older person or speaking in a very high pitched loud volume just because you're talking to an older person or using terms like sweetie or honey um, and using language that sort of belittles the old, older person, make them feel and treat them like children, that is not okay. So within clinical setting and in everyday setting, we want to try to minimize and avoid elder speak. Um, and I think because now we are, a lot of us are on Zoom a lot, and so we can certainly convey compassion with eye contact and body language, even through Zoom. So we should try to practice that as we, and as we come out of the pandemic and we are meeting each other in person, um, of course we should certainly practice good communication and be patient and treat, treat each other with grace. Awesome. Well, that's great advice. And thank you, Dr. Lee, for your time today. I appreciate you coming onto the podcast and I, I've learned a lot of interesting things today. I hope our listeners got some great stuff out of it too. So thank you for your time. Of course. Thank you a lot. To all our listeners, thank you for tuning in. The Innovations in Aging podcast is supported by Innovations in Aging graduate interdisciplinary degree programs and University of Arizona Health Sciences International. If you're interested in the career of gerontology or adding new skills to your current profession, you can learn more about University of Arizona academic programs in the podcast description. 